Hi, this is Pastor Brittany Isaac from Urban Village Church, Chicago. We are a church that is bold, inclusive, and relevant. I know that many of you out there are hungry for a gospel message of healing and wholeness, a message that leads to a life transformed by Christ. I hope that this podcast does just that. And if it does, would you please consider making a financial gift that will support this gospel-inclusive ministry? You can do that by going to urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks so much and have a blessed day. Not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The word of God for the people of God. Um, after everything that's been going on in the last week, two weeks, and more, there's a lot to say. And there's supposed to be a sermon series going on, too, about the city and about our love for the city and finding God in the midst of the city. So I'm going to ask your indulgence as I... Uh, as I share with you today, first of all, it's been a long time since I've done this. <laughs> um, second of all, when I went through my sermon the first time, it was an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> I got it down to 40. <laughs> There's a lot to say, folks. There's a lot that I need to hear. And usually a good sermon is the kind of sermon that you preach to yourself of what you need to hear. And there's a lot I've got to hear. And uh, there's a lot for me to share as a person, to be straightforward and personal and hope that you can extrapolate from the personal of my stuff to the personal of your stuff. So with all of that, I beg your indulgence and your prayer and your support, and if, you, if we run out of time, wave at me. It won't be an hour and 15 minutes, I promise, but... Maybe it'll be shorter. <laughs> so the way to do this, I decided, is to get to the bottom line first so that we don't, it doesn't get lost in all the words. Let's start with where we need to end, with what we need to say to one another and what we need to hear. So here it is. It's out of the book of John, the Gospel of John, and it's these words. They're out of two different chapters. I heard them yesterday out of, uh, in a wedding service. 
but they have to do with our everyday life, not just couples who want to pledge their love to each other, but to each disciple. So I'm going to ask you to read it with me so that this is the bottom line. This is, if you don't remember anything else, remember this and look it up in John 13 and 15 and you'll get it. Here it is. Let's say it together. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You get it? You get it? Can we, do we need to? Let's read it again. And read it with a good voice. You ready? I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have... This is Jesus talking. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here it goes. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Here it is, Jesus talking. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Friends, Jesus did not give a lot of commandments. He gave invitations. He gave hints. He talked about all sorts of different kinds of things that we might ought to kind of do. Presented with moral decisions about what do you do about sexual impropriety. He talks about, he writes in the sand and says, those of you who are without sin cast the first stone. What does that mean? These kinds of hints that Jesus gives. But here Jesus gives a commandment. And this is, get this straight, this is a commandment that comes from one who loves us unconditionally. This is not the commandment that if somehow we break or if we fail at, we're in deep trouble, we're going to hell, we're in eternal damnation. It's from one who loves us unconditionally. A commandment of love from one who loves. Hmm? So this is not something that is meant to scare you or to make you walk in a certain way, narrow the path. It is something that invites you to respond to the love you have received with love that you can share. Okay, that's the bottom line. That's it. <clears throat> a definition. See if you agree with it. Prejudice 
plus power equals racism. We throw around the word racism all the time. He's a racist. Prejudice is the root, and power is the enabler that makes a person a racist. There are a lot of people who are prejudiced, but they don't have power. That's why it's hard for persons of color to be racists, because they don't have power over others. Many do not. So they may have prejudice. They may see me or someone like me and make all sorts of assumptions and prejudgments about me and what I believe and what I think and what I might do in this situation. But they don't have the power that makes them racists. I have the power that I can use I know people I can call, and I'm part of an organization of people that, are, that can control how things are spoken about, and what's right and wrong, and who's punished, who's singled out, who's lifted up, and who is forgotten about and pushed aside. Some people call it white privilege. You and I experience that, many of us experience that every day. I can go into a store and pile all sorts of things in my arms, put stuff high up, and all sorts of expensive things. And I don't have a manager following me around, making sure I don't slip something in, the po- in my pocket. That's, that's white privilege. I can get away with a lot of things that persons of color would be questioned about or not allowed to do. I know a little bit about racism and because my wife and I and our family of two small boys lived on the big island of Hawaii in a very small rural community, 1,500 people, plus another 1,500 outside the area. Our children were the only children in that entire community and in the school that had anything other than black hair. And they were looked at and drew attention, sometimes subtle, and even benign, and other times obtrusive and hurtful. Our older son was bullied, and his teacher gave him failing grades in kindergarten, saying he didn't know his colors or his alphabet because she wanted to prove that that white kid doesn't know all he thinks he knows, and neither do his parents. So we, for those three years, 
knew about being distinguished and set apart. Jean was shunned in the teacher's lounge of the school where she was a substitute teacher and was refused service in stores. So don't talk to us about the paradise of Hawaii, okay? <laughs> Not us. So we know a little bit. We haven't lived, as some of you had, a, have, a lifetime of discrimination, a lifetime from when you were small to, when, to, to this very day where you're treated differently. And that kind of stuff is difficult to deal with and understand. It's messy and sometimes subtle and sometimes very, very confrontationally evil. Let's name it when we break the commandment. As loving as it is, that's sin because it's separating us from God. Whatever we do that separates us from God is sinful. So let's be really clear. Racism, whatever it is that separates us, that's sin. Name it. When you see it, when you hear it, when you experience it, It's separating us from God. <clears throat> Here's a way of thinking about it that was invented or was named, not invented, but <laughs> named by a man named Martin Buber. Not Martin, not Martin Luther, but Martin Buber. Back in the, he was in the mid-1800s, lived into the early 1900s, a Jewish theologian philosopher. And he spoke about uh, uh, interpersonal relationships. He said there are some relationships that we have that are I-it relationships. Where we treat people as objects, as things. People who can get stuff done for us. And as long as they do what we want them to do, they're valuable to us. And uh, otherwise they're throwaway. They're its. They're not worth anything, except for what they can do for me. They serve us our food. Fine, fine, fine. They clean our room in the hotel. Isn't that nice? They check out our groceries. They satisfy us sexually. And they are its because we use them for our own benefit. Buber says that's an I-it relationship. And he says there's another kind. There's an I-thou relationship where we look for the slice of God that is in that person. Whatever they are and whoever they are, we look for the image of God that is invested in them and treat them accordingly with the kind of care and respect and equality 
and forgiveness that God treats us with. Sound familiar? (laughs) I it, I thou. Now a little a little footnote. Sometimes Christians say, oh, the Old Testament is full of law and punishment, and the New Testament is full of love and forgiveness. Here is a Jewish theologian who has only the Hebrew scriptures in front of him who understands God's hesed, his loving kindness, and who uses the creation story and looks at that creation story and says, I don't care whether God took, ten to, took six days or six eons to create the earth. The message is the image of God is in human beings. And he blesses that passage by understanding how it blesses us in our own understanding, the one with whom we disagree, the one from whom we are deeply different, is a person of value. They have God's image, whether they know it or not. Hmm? It's one of the reasons that it's hard for me to be an activist. Uh, to, to march <laughs> or to, to call or to speak against this person or that because I know that they are people who were rocked in their mama's arms, that they held their baby with the same tenderness that I held mine. That they, whether they know it or not, or act as if they have it or not, they've got God's image in them. They've got something of value. They may not have learned how to act that out. They may not have learned how to put aside the profit motive or the power impulse, but God is there in them, in their bones as well as in mine. Now, uh, in the 1960s or so, Harvey Cox published a book called The Secular City, and he said, well, there's I, it, and there's I, thou, and in the city, in the city, there's, it, it's hard to treat every person you meet as, as God, as an image of God. So there's an I-you relationship. Okay? So you should treat the other as you want to be treated. Sound familiar? Out of James? Love your neighbor as you want to be loved. (laughs) Act as if you want to be acted upon, treated. So understand that as a piece of the way we relate in a secular city. 
So whether you're looking for an I-you relationship or an I-thou relationship, we treat one another with respect and care, with forgiveness and understanding. We look for the good. Some of you may not have seen it. There were hundreds of persons religious in Charlottesville that were in a line facing persons who were armed, fully armed, blocking, forming a barrier, in a love barrier. Didn't get a lot of media attention because there wasn't a lot of conflict, but there was a huge amount of conflict because here was love looking square into the face of sin. And insisting that love is to be followed. Love is to be exemplified, to be embodied. You'll know that they will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. And there's that line of people. Some of them in clergy garb, some of them with crosses, some way of sharing and showing that their faith led them to be there arm in arm facing those who would call them names. There was another part of the line where there was physical violence. But this was a line of witness and power. And who would have dreamed that corporate America would exempt themselves and say, no, no, I'm not going to be part of this. Who would have dreamed that these people who have been trained to make a profit would subject themselves to the slings and arrows of others as they say, I'm not going to be one of them. I choose to treat people with equality. Who? My gosh. Look at that. So here we are. It's messy. It's difficult. It's something that we do when we walk down the street and we look in someone's eyes and acknowledge, smile, bow, recognize their worth, their humanity, even though we do not know them. It's that little and that big, and it's global. Who knows what kinds of effects our love, our I, you, and I, thou relationships can make in, the, in our building, in our neighborhood, in our city, in our world. A number of years ago, my wife and I took our boys on an epic trip across the United States, the Rockies, sweet Kansas, for a high school reunion. And then up to the East Coast and down the East Coast to Virginia, our family 
our family homeland, where my father was born and raised, where his sisters and brothers, many of them lived, and cousins. Uncle Bill piled us into the car to take us across the border to North Carolina, to Price, North Carolina, and Price United Methodist Church. It was one of those hot, summer, humid days of the South. And I suspected that chiggers and cicadas were just waiting for our skin as we walked through the unmowed grass between the church and the family burial plot. My father had told me that I was the seventh Robert and the fifth Preston and the third Robert Preston, and there I saw Roberts and Prestons and Robert Preston Price the first. It was an eerie feeling to see your name on a gravestone. And I figured it was because of that eeriness that our older son walked away from the gravesite. He said, Uncle Bill, what's over here? Under the the branches of a low-hanging tree, there were these stones, small, irregular. Here, here, here. What's this, he says. We all walked over, and Uncle Bill says, Oh, those are the graves of the slaves. going to knock me over with a feather. My father had told me about uh, why he left the South and had moved at the day he was married in Virginia to, to Arizona and then Southern California and then Boston and then Kansas and then Southern California again. Why his family called him a damn Yankee. He instructed me about how things were when we would go to visit Grandma and Grandpa. He would tell me that there was a woman who would be in Grandma's kitchen. And while I knew that our family always referred to our elders as Mr. or Miss or Mrs., in Grandma's house, the woman who was working to help Grandma in the kitchen would be referred to by her first name, only an African-American woman. I'd been prepared for all of that, but my father had never told me that my family had owned slaves. Sometimes it takes a while for things to dawn on you. Sometimes it's instantaneous. It took a while for me to figure out I received a wonderful education and graduate school and a great job as a pastor with free housing and a good, excellent pension program and uh, good health care. He prepared me for that. He, my father, 
got to go to a prestigious university, University of William and Mary. And when he felt the call to ministry, he went to a prestigious seminary in Atlanta. And even though he didn't make much when he was first in, in uh, pastoral ministry, he received the kind of education that he could capitalize on and that helped him to begin to study and get a PhD and become an assistant professor, an associate professor, a full professor with all of the rights and privileges thereto. Because his father could afford that. His father, my grandfather, was a dentist. Highly respected Dr. Price, people would say, there in Martinsville, Virginia. And he could go to dental school because his father, my great-grandfather, was a great entrepreneur with a store in Price, North Carolina. And he was, had this store because his father, my great-great-grandfather, Robert Preston Price I, owned land that he could farm and buy more land and even afford to give some of it to build a church on that would be named after him because he owned slaves. So now in the fourth generation, I am a beneficiary. Even though there were all sorts of things that my father did to say that we are not a part of this, we should not be, well, we have received the benefit, we are beneficiaries over these four generations. And now my son and my grandson, these stretch this advantage, this leg up stretched all these generations. And at the same time, those who were slaves and their families, the disadvantage and the marginalization continued. Continued. So here we are, and it's not over. You can't just say the Emancipation Proclamation or the war on poverty or some other event is going to make this huge change. We have to be the change. We have to find ways to embody equality, to embody an understanding of each person created in the image of God. I, thou relationships... And we have to resist, not out of guilt, but out of understanding God's presence and Jesus' new commandment. Oh, Lord, it's hard. Lord, forgive us. Lord, keep us on the path. Please, keep us on the path.
One of the ways we stay on the path is to support our church, to support all sorts of other institutions that fight and help institutions that have institutionalized racism and discrimination. So I'm going to invite you to do that in whatever way you choose. If you're here for the first time, know that we're thankful just for your presence, and you've given us a gift already. But we invite you now. We invite you now to make your commitment to the commandment. Hmm? May it be so.